Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books Network. I am your host, Erica Monahan, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Christian Raffensperger about a newly edited volume that is just out. The title of the volume is Authorship, Worldview, and Identity in Medieval Europe. Christian Raffensperger is the Kenneth E. Ray Chair in Humanities at Wittenberg University in the USA and Professor and Chair of the History Department. Christian has written two monographs. Um, his, truth, his first monograph was a 2012 book, Reimagining Europe, Kievan Rus and the Medieval World. In 2018, he came out with a second monograph entitled Conflict, Bargaining, and Kinship Networks in Medieval Eastern Europe. Along the way, he has also co-edited two volumes of collected essays, which are wonderful. Um, One was Portraits of Medieval Eastern Europe, 800 to 1300, co-edited with Donald Ostrowski. And this is a wonderful volume that um, provides portraits of medieval individuals. And I have found it to really um, resonate in the undergraduate classroom. So I am delighted to recommend that to people. Um, And your other edited volume is Radical Traditionalism, the Influence of Walter Kagey in Late Antique, Byzantine, and Medieval History, which you co-edited with David Ulster. Christian has also written a number of scholarly articles as well as some pieces for the popular press. Back in 2016, some of our readers may have encountered this. Um, He wrote a piece in the monkey cage at the Washington Post about about Ukraine's EU association agreement. Um, This was when the issue was revisited in 2016, um, and you wrote a powerful piece there. And I'll also note that since the invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, you've written several pieces offering historical perspective for various various local newspaper outlets, which um, is, is such an important thing to do. So thank you very much 
for all that you've done, all that you continue to do. And thank you for spending an hour here with us to talk about this latest book, Christian. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, we always start our New Books Networks interviews, or at least I do, with the question of how did you become a historian? Please tell us a little bit about your path into history. Uh, my path actually began, uh, you know, a long time ago because I was a little kid who played with knights and castles, uh, and I just was fascinated by the Middle Ages through that aspect. And uh, then when I got into uh, high school, it was during the time the Soviet Union was beginning to fall apart under Gorbachev, and we had a Russian teacher, and so I took Russian, and those paths continued very separately, Russian and then medieval Europe, uh, until I got to college, and I took a upper-level seminar class with Michael Jones at Bates College on the Vikings, and I learned about the Vikings in Eastern Europe, and all of a sudden, there was this synchronicity between my interests. Um, I didn't pursue it immediately. I went and worked for a while, and then I decided you know, I wanted to go into higher education. And so I went to graduate school and, um, you know, I really thought this is what I wanted to do. And I wanted to teach people about uh, these things that uh, I had discovered. And, and that's what I've ended up doing. And so, you know, it's really worked out nicely for me. I get to do what I love. Super, super. Yeah, that is great. Um, all right. And then the next question, which we all, which we typically ask, and I want to ask you, is, is I want to ask you, why did you write this book? I, I, but given that this is an edited collection, I want to pause a bit more on how you, as the editor, who um, you didn't write the individual pieces, but you conceived of this project, you edited and worked with all of these authors, and you brought this project to fruition. Um, and I find this book to be so rich, it cuts in a variety of directions that I found really um, worth thinking about. And um, so I want to spend a little bit more time on this kind of the project, how you see it as a whole. And one example, for example, is I like how you point out in your introduction that the um, the AHR, the flagship journal of the American Historical Association, um, has published on its website that it is consciously trying to broaden its coverage. And it put it in these terms, and you quote it in the article that, quote, for much of its history, the AHR published essays primarily on the history of North America and Western Europe. And it goes on and says, and it is now looking to expand its coverage and actively encourages, now I'm quoting in, the submission of manuscripts on Africa, Asia, Oceania, Oceania, Latin America, and the Middle East. And in that capacious list of geographic spaces, there is no Eastern Europe. <laughs> um, right. and, so, and so I want to ask you to say more about the place of Eastern Europe in medieval Europe and medieval history here, please. Yeah, so this, I mean, you know, and I, I'm so glad that you noted that because that's one of these funny things that, um, you know, the AHR editors have no in ill intent whatsoever. They're simply trying to follow along with this current trend, you know, much needed to try and expand historical coverage. Um, but the lacuna is pretty obvious when you list all those places as you did and, and you just don't have Eastern Europe. Um, you know, when I started my academic career, with reimagining Europe, you know, what I wanted was to bring Rus into medieval Europe. And then as I, I kept reading and kept writing, what I found is it's not just Rus. Um, you know, basically medieval Europe ends at the Elbe. 
as far as the majority of what we call medievalists in the Anglophone world are concerned. And so, I mean, this leads me back to your initial question about authorship, worldview, and identity and how it was conceived. And so this is a title that, uh, you know, we workshopped with the publisher. Uh, you know, Rutledge has just been amazing. Uh, you know, my editor there, Michael, um, has been fantastic. And uh, I, I like it. But in my head, I still call this book uh, Medieval's Worldview, as in uh, the possessive people's, medieval's, their worldview. And the reason I call it that is because for a long time, I've picked on a very popular uh, medieval European history textbook published by Oxford University Press called uh, The Medieval Worldview. And The Medieval Worldview is pretty easy to pick on because it has got three really beautiful full page, uh, you know, two page spread maps. And on the left side of the page is Western Europe, and you've got all the cities in France and Southern England, some cities in the German Empire and Italy. Um, and then the entire right hand is empty. <laughs> and so you see these maps, and, I, and I've used them in a number of publications, and you see these maps, and it's like, why did you even include a two-page spread uh, if you are the audience of this book, undergraduate students, and you're looking at these maps of medieval Europe, your impression is very clearly that medieval Europe is populated in the West and utterly depopulated in the East. And, uh, you know, it might sound like I'm exaggerating, but, but certainly I'm not. Uh, you know, you can go look at these maps and uh, you see Poland, Bohemia, Hungary is in early medieval Europe, and those are just labels. But then in high medieval Europe, even those labels disappear, uh, although we do get Prague as a city, and then everything else is gone. My Rus, for instance, is under the key. Uh, they put the key right where Rus is. Um, so there is this impression given that medieval Eastern Europe, and really I mean by that small e as in directional, not capital E Eastern as in you know the concept of Eastern Europe, but the Eastern half of Europe is empty. It's terra incognita, um, and the text of the book, you know, follows along in this. And, and there are a few mentions of Eastern Europe, but the few mentions of Eastern Europe in that book are generally to prove a modern point. So the author will talk about the religious divide as mirroring the Iron Curtain, or uh, the religious divide in the Balkans as mirroring the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. You know, it's not there for its own historical purpose, as the history of France or England is there. Uh, and so, you know, I, I've talked so much about this, and I thought what we really need to do is we need to go back to our primary sources. And I published a piece um, uh, a few different year, uh, a few years ago uh, in a, a volume called The Medieval Networks in East Central Europe. Um, and that piece, which does have those maps in it as well talked about this idea that, that what we should do is we should go back to our primary sources and see how they conceptualize the world. And this was, you know, uh, riffing on an idea. Um, and then after a couple years, I thought, okay, you know what, that's actually a pretty good idea. I don't have it in me to do all of that. You know, let's get some people together and let's have them talk about their favorite source or one of the sources they use the most. And how did that source, how did that primary author conceptualize their world. Right? And so that's what the edited collection came to be, is how do those medieval people view the world around them? 
Okay. And so, and that is what you're talking about. There's a spot in the um, introduction where you're laying out the goals and also get into the methodology a bit. And, and I'll just even quote this because the passage stuck out at me, uh, um, stuck out for me. And you write, this volume attempts to correct or at least challenge the construct that is medieval Europe by going back to the primary sources the building blocks upon which the story of medieval Europe rests. Though it is an approach reliant upon returning to the sources, this volume has no intention of replicating the style of history made famous by Leopold von Ranke so many years ago. And so you talked you talked about the goal, and now I, I want to ask you to just say a little bit more about this, this method of you know, bringing us to the sources, but not in the way that von Ranke did. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that, that I have done uh, in my 15 plus years at Wittenberg is teach our methods classes. Uh, and the methods classes for history majors always include, you know, the requisite uh, his historiography and, and going back to Ranke and, and what the idea, the Rankean idea that if you just read all of the sources, you can combine the true fact of history. And you know, certainly we are well past that. And, and we are, um, post postmodern uh, historians for the most part at this point. Uh, but anytime you say go back to the sources to historians, especially to medieval historians, there is an immediate knee jerk reaction of like, oh, wait, nope, this is a 19th century thing that you're doing. And so I felt like I had to really put that in there that it is not. We're utilizing very modern methodologies in the book. And, you know, you see that in a variety of places, not only through the inclusion of material culture. You know, Yitzhak Jasperza um, has a wonderful piece about the treasuries, the Guelph treasuries, and then the treasury in San Isidoro. Um, but, you know, Stacey Morell's piece also is fantastic in this regard. Um, but we're, I really thought it was important to acknowledge up front that we were not trying to use some kind of recidivist uh, methodology to go back to the past, but instead uh, we were trying to utilize the sources to go forward into the future. And I think it's really important to try and do that for all kinds of things and let the sources speak and not in a negative way, right? Not, you know, that they will tell us the truth, but, you know, and I mentioned this in the introduction, you know, Lisa Wolverton uh, has an amazing uh, book on Cosmos at Prague, where instead of, you know, mining Cosmos's narrative for information about medieval Bohemia, um, instead she's writing about Cosmos the author and what the author's intention was for his work. And, and it really changes the way we look at Cosmos and Cosmos's text, rather than looking up a date in it, or, you know, what did this king do or that king do? Uh, if we can understand the authors and their authorial intent, which is, again, a very postmodern way of looking at things, I think that will help us understand this uh, worldview construction that the book is trying to get at. Thank you so much. And yes, that is one of the things that I found so rich in this book that that cuts in a variety of really valuable directions. And um, so um, and the so we've talked about medieval Eastern Europe and in Eastern medieval Europe, but the volume isn't just about Eastern Europe. Um, these 17 articles um, take us in addition to Kiev and the Baltics and and the Baltics and the Baltic states and the Balkans. We also see texts and people from Scandinavia, Iberia, the Mediterranean, and even Western Europe. And actually, that's a good segue to get right into the meat of the 
um, the volume. We, we won't have time to discuss everything in here. So hopefully readers will, you know, listen to this and then go and get their hands on authorship, worldview and identity in medieval Europe. But we'll but to talk about just a few of the pieces. So the first article in the volume is um, by Aaron Thomas um, Daly, and he has this piece, The Horizons of Gregory Tours. So here you've got um, this person very much from Western Europe, right? Please tell us a bit about this piece and how this piece about from someone from what's now France serves the purposes of this project. Yeah, I, you know, Erica, I really appreciate you asking that and pointing out that it does encompass all of medieval Europe because that was a very intentional goal. And, you know, one of the things that I really am trying to do with a lot of my scholarship, um, and this book really was a, a way to start that, was to look at medieval Europe more broadly. And part of that is because, you know, I've got a pretty reliable audience who will read stuff on Bruce, right? But, you know, my good friend, Amy Livingstone, for instance, who's a historian of, of the Loire Valley and now has moved to Brittany, um, she is not gonna read a book on Bruce necessarily, but she's a medievalist and, and she is uh, somebody I want to be reading my work and, and exchanging ideas with. And so, my work needs to be about all of medieval Europe. And so that's why I tried to include such a broad territory here. Uh, and Aaron Daly's piece is a great example of that because Gregory of Tours is just symbolic for early medieval Europe in so many ways. And um, his history, right, or history of the Franks, as it's often been called, uh, is used for so much of understanding the Merovingian world and the early Christianization and, and all kinds of topics. It's been used in feud literature. It's been used in women's studies for understanding uh, all of these powerful women and then the stereotypes about powerful women. But what Aaron does in his piece that I think is so fascinating is he points out that actually Gregory lives in a much bigger world than Frankia. Um, he talks about saints both living and dead in the Middle East. He talks about India. He talks about these enormous horizons because the world he lives in is Christendom. And yet the vast majority of uses that Gregory has been put to are, are relatively narrow. Right? They're relatively confined to the horizons of medieval Western Europe or early medieval Western Europe. But as Aaron read through this text and then narrated this information for us, picking out these examples, you know, we've got all sorts of things from the Eastern Mediterranean. We've got all sorts of things, both again, living and dead. So this is not just going back to biblical times, but current things during Gregory's period uh, that are going on in, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean that show us his awareness of and his conceptualization of a much wider world than we traditionally Traditionally, think of Gregory as living in. Hmm. Thank you. And you know what? Actually, this this reminds me that I want to come back to your um, your own previous work that led you up to doing this volume. Um, that because as you know, as I listen to you speak, yes, it makes so much sense that people living in Gaul and what's now France might if if we are open to the possibilities when we read their work we get we could get real clues about how big or where their worlds stretched which is what i see this book doing and in one of the reasons it makes sense that it, it turns out some of those worlds um of so many medievals stretched farther than say that traditional textbook um that you that you talked about might lead us to believe um, one of the reasons we 
can appreciate that it goes farther, I think it has is because of your earlier work. And um, so I because I looked through and I noticed there isn't an NBN interview on it. I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about your your first two books. I, they are very much part of this project. Um, your first book, Reimagining Europe, Kiev and Rus and the Medieval World. And then your second book on kinship networks. In some ways, this is super unfair of me to just pop on you. But in, in a paragraph or so, Will you tell us what you do in those books and how it helps us understand that um, that the connections were wider than just Western Europe? Absolutely. Well, and I don't think it's super unfair of you, but I, you know, I'm also Erica going to pick on NBN if that's all right for just a minute, because I think one of the the reasons that there isn't an NBN interview is because my work falls between uh, categories, and categories or silos, as I often talk about them, are really what define the academic world. And so you and I know each other uh, from the Slavic studies world. And so I fit into the Slavic studies world as part of this early part of Slavic studies. You're more in a Muscovite period of Slavic studies. Um, and then I go to medieval studies conferences where I'm off at the Eastern fringe or Byzantine studies conferences where I'm part of a Northern fringe. Uh, but, you know, medieval traditional medieval studies i don't really fit into and traditional slavic studies i don't really fit into which is more you know uh, imperial or, or soviet so you know my work exists in a really weird intersection um that is neither a slavic silo a byzantine silo or a medieval silo but is intentionally trying to bridge many of those different things so you know that's maybe two paragraphs more than you wanted but Coming back to Reimagining Europe, I mean, Reimagining Europe uh, from 2012 um, was a book where I was trying to integrate Rus into medieval Europe, and I was trying to do it through a few different categories. Uh, one of those was to get rid of this idea of the Byzantine Commonwealth. And, you know, it's interesting because art historians at the time told me, oh, you know, that's a straw man. The Byzantine Commonwealth is dead. Um, but it's it's not dead. It's, it's really not dead at all, especially for historians and especially for medievalists who still use it all the time. Um, and so I wanted to talk about something alternate, which was the Byzantine ideal, which is that Byzantium or the medieval Roman Empire, as I call it more often these days, uh, was the ideal empire and everybody was looking to appropriate from it. And the Ottonians did that. Uh, we see that at Monte Cassino in the Italian peninsula. We even see that in, in the Arabic and Turkic world as well. And yet, because of Obolensky and because of a variety of other scholars, we've singled out the Slavic appropriations as different or special and divided that off. And that is not, not surprisingly, uh, matches very nicely to the Iron Curtain. So situating Rus in that broader world of we're all appropriating from Byzantium takes away some of that otherness. I also looked at dynastic marriages and the marriages that were made uh, between the Russian royal family and the rest of medieval Europe. And, you know, this is something that, for instance, in that uh, Slavic studies silo, uh, if you go back to uh, Kiev and Russia, which is, you know, a classic book um, uh, of that world, uh, these marriages are dismissed in, in just a few sentences. They don't really appear uh, in Western medieval things unless it's Anna Yaroslavna who is married to Henry of France, and then you know she's othered for a variety of reasons. Um, so I really focus on those marriages as a way to tie Rus into medieval Europe. Um, and then I also talked about their religious ties because that's one of the things that often uh, Rus is to discussed as converting to Christianity in 988 with Byzantium. Uh, 
You get a marriage between uh, Volodymyr and Anna, uh, and then you get the next discussion is about Ivan Third and Sophia Paleologina, which is 400 years later, uh, and you see this Byzantine connection, right, for Rus. But but in the 10th and 11th and 12th centuries, you know the the Russian world existed as part of a larger Christian world. Uh, and we see that with the marriages. We see that with taking in saints' lives and celebrations of saints um, from Pope Urban II's celebration of the translation of the relics of St. Nicholas, for instance. Um, all kinds of connections. And and so that's, you know, reimagining Europe in a nutshell. I mean, it's a big nut. It's like a coconut shell. I'm sorry, Erica. Yeah, but it, I mean, it is such a great book. I mean, when I read... Um... Wow, fifty-four marriages into to Western Europe over this over this you know century and a half or so was it? For, I, it's been a while since I've read it, but it just it's remarkable work um, and that we should all know about. Um, actually, though, and I want to um, that you talk about these his, historical silos, and I want to say NBN is trying to do its part um, in addressing that, and so you've given me this chance to just. Um, plug for a minute and maybe I can, you know, talk, we can have another conversation in that New Books Network um, in conjunction with Critica. I've, I've just been uh, um, involved in founding a, um, a series called History X Silo. And the idea is exactly what you talk about, uh, um, that so often as historians, we only talk to each other or this particular community. Um, and the idea of history ex silo is to try and get historians talking across our subfields. So um, so listeners, I encourage them to, you know, put in search history ex silo. We're just starting to do interviews now. Christian, I can talk to you more about that as well. Although, even though I think that the, the sense in which you used um you know, our silos is that some of this work, like medieval um, marriages from the royal house of Kiev, landing in Western Europe, has in many ways just fallen out of the picture for so many people. And your work is so important in bringing that back in. Um, all right, but moving on, moving on to no, our, our, our. Hold on, before <laughs> you go on, though, I would note, yes, absolutely. Um, I've got one scheduled for August. It was supposed to be February, but it's gotten pushed back. So you can hear me on that too. Oh, super, super. Okay, great. Um, all right. With Joanna see. Drell. Oh, all right, all right, good. Um, yay. All right. Now, next, I want, okay, because I currently in my own research, um, oh, and I, I actually wanted to say, I really, um, so much of what you're saying um, resonates so much with what I would consider my intellectual agenda of really integrating, you know, places east of the Elbe um, into a broader um, context. And, and for me, the period I focus on most is the early modern period and the, you know, 15 to 1800. But I think that um, this kind of approach can, you know, that we have a lot of work to do in our in our respective fields in that direction. So, so I am with you on that one. And um, so, because I spend time so much of my time in my own research thinking about people who traversed Eurasia before there were modern maps to do it, I wanted to ask you about this article about Marco Polo, one of those you know intrepid travelers. So, it's uh, Teresa Shawcross has an article. The worldview of Marco Polo's 
Divisamento du, du Monde, his um, cur the currency of the world, commercial marvels, silk route, nostalgia, and global empire in the late Middle Ages. Um, so we've all heard the name Marco Polo, probably know a li little bit we think about him, um, but I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about this article and, and what does this article achieve that that's been missing, that's a new contribution in your perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that. I, I would also add a parenthetical that I agree absolutely that your work does the same sort of thing, especially, uh, you know, I'm moving beyond the Elbe and you're moving us beyond the Urals. Um, and, you know, I am trying so hard to integrate, you know, all of that material into the, the Imperial Russian things and uh, not just talk about a European focus. So I appreciate that very much. Um, so for Teresa's article, Shawcross's article, um, she's trying to look at um, Marco Polo in a very different way than is traditionally done. And she's focused on, as the, the title indicates, or the subtitle indicates, uh, the commercial implications. And so she's reading it via the commercial implications and saying, this is what Marco Polo was focused on. And within that, we see an analysis of the mercantile community of Byzantium, and the mercantile community of the Mongol world and how that fits into the uh, Italian city-states and how those compare one to another. Um, and so within that, she can really get at a whole variety of topics that have been a little bit hidden before because that, that uh, divisement was being used for a different purpose. And it's really interesting to think, and actually, you know, so many of these things in this volume worked out very nicely. And I can't, I can't take credit for that. You know, the authors did all the work, um, but they worked out so nicely in resonating one with another, getting back to that idea of what was the authorial intent. And, you know, of course we'd go into a long thing about who was the author of that particular text, but but the, the text itself's purpose, um, Teresa Shawcross points out is maybe not what we've often thought it was and that we learned so much instead about um, the way that Marco Polo and the Polos in general viewed their world via this mercantile interaction rather than, you know, the othering of look at this crazy stuff that I'm seeing out in the world or, you know, look at what I can pull out of this text about race or ethnicity or religion. Um, and so it's a, it, and again, it feels like, you know, a new focus, but it's a new focus on a topic that we often consider to be an old topic, which is mercantile history or economic history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, and even that she calls that um, in this text, you know, one of the marvels identified actually turns out to be, um, you know, a European at a distant court. And so that was so it's not just about some really othered exotica in some ways. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that piece a lot. And um, well, let's see, I the other piece that, you know, as a historian of early modern Russia, that definitely um, you know, jumped out to me and I wanted to ask you about is this article. There's an article in the volume by Ines Garcia de la Puente called um, Imagine, Imagined Geographies in Early Rus. Um, and in it, she has she writes um this she's talking about um, sort of in, put crudely, you know, what can we learn about geography from the primary chronicle? And she said, which is the, you know, kind of, well, I'll let you give us a primer for readers and listeners that don't know on the primary chronicle. But um, so she writes. 
by explaining where the land of Rus came from and describing its territory, the primary chronicle engages in a process of symbolic interpretation rather than of objective representation. Perhaps foreseeably, the textual map that transpires from its pages imagines, geog imagines geography rather than pictures it. Um, and at, at some, as I was reading this article at some, albeit minuscule level, I, I just couldn't help but wonder that if, if Vladimir Putin, who fancies, who has fancied himself a student of history, um, had read this sort of material in his syllabi, perhaps, I mean, could he have come to some different conclusions? I don't, given what we've seen, hold up much hope, but I, I wanted to um, ask you to tell us a bit about this piece and, and how it speaks to the volume's main goals. Yeah, absolutely. I really like this one, of course, because, you know, I do do uh, medieval Eastern Europe and medieval Rus in particular. And so uh, instead of inserting myself into the volume, I really wanted to get a great scholar uh, who would do good work. And Inez certainly blew me away with that because she brings in all kinds of things here that uh, is literature and scholarship that I don't do and ways that I don't think about this history. And um, I really like this piece in so many ways because she goes through and she talks about the construction and it is a construction of the world as viewed by the author or the um, authors of this text. And this text we call uh, the Povis, uh, the tale of bygone years, perhaps is one way to translate it, uh, that is the earliest uh, text that we have from Bruce. And it narrates the history kind of from the flood, but really uh, mostly from the 10th and 11th into the very early 12th century. Um, and we see a lot of narrative information in there. We see a lot of uh, uh, analytical information or uh, analytic, pardon me, information. Um, but in the early stages, which is what she's talking about, uh, we see the writer try and conceive of how does Rus fit into a Christian world? And there is some reliance on uh, biblical information from George Hamartolis, uh, John Malalas, um, and, and it's possible that, that there is some borrowing directly from those texts, and we see that. Um, but we also get, you know, this narrative of creation from Genesis, uh, and we get uh, the division of the world among the sons of Noah. And the world that ends up being created is not one that uh, is is uh, creating itself as an Eastern European other. It's connected to the Byzantine world, of course. It's connected to the Middle East, but it's also connected to the Slavic world because we've got all of these other Slavic connections. And so we see mentions of the Moravians and Bulgarians, the Croats, the Lyaks, the Lyaks, uh, how the Poles are referred to. Um, but we also see that the chronicler connects the travels of St. Andrew uh, through the land of Rus, and he has St. Andrew travel through the land of Rus as a way to reach Rome. Uh, and this is such an odd thing. I mean, you know, I can almost imagine, you know, booking this on Expedia, but it would be, you know, Constantinople to Kiev to Novgorod um, and then around Europe to Rome. It, no way, no way that's the easiest way to go. But the chronicler used this as a way to uh, almost delineate the known world, including Rus, as part of that wider Christian world. And so I think that's really important to think about. Um, the chronicler 
um, almost certainly he, but um, he used these, uh, you know, boundaries to the Caspian, uh, the, the Ural Mountains, you know, these other boundaries to conceptualize that known and unknown um, that makes Rus part of a Christian world, right? Not necessarily defined as a European world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so um, much for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I add one thing to that too, which is that, you know, I love your question or your, your, your thought about Vladimir Putin, um, because this is one of the things I think about as well when I give uh, talks on the Ukraine war. Um, and uh, I have a, a small book that came out in January called From Kiev and Rus to Ukraine, uh, Past is Present. And it's uh, from a German publisher in their Zeitenspiegel uh, series. And it's one of these, you know, small format, you know, 30,000 word uh, books. And it talks about the Ukraine war um, as a, a bookend, introduction and conclusion. And then in the middle is a, is a potted history of Rus um, talking about all of these interconnections, making Rus part of medieval Europe. And so, I mean, it is really trying to shape this narrative that if we view the past differently, as moderns, as present people, if we view the past differently such that Rus and modern-day Ukraine is part of Europe, that changes how we conceptualize what Europe is and the way and uh, the ways in which we care about medieval Europe as well. Yes. So, and and also, I, I thank you so much for that. And and breaking down what you know, any understanding of what's primordial perhaps is another aspect I appreciated but thank you for um so you have a book that just came out in um just came out that I didn't mention in the beginning my apologies for that and and yes please tell us again the title uh from Kievan Rus to Ukraine past is present super thank you very much um Oh, that's great. Well, so actually, I we don't have um, a whole lot. I don't want to keep you too, too much. But so far, we've talked about some of the articles that are in the first part of the book. Um, and the first part of the book, the articles, are, you is listed under this section title, A Wider World. And in the second part of the book, um, there's a series of articles on that the title there is neighbors and neighborhoods. And um, I just thought that one of the articles that I wanted that I thought I might ask you about because it has this great um, methodology of looking at vernacular in the use of vernacular in administrative documents. And it was Frederick Soup, I think. And he has this article, the medieval Welsh ethnic nicknames and implications um, um, for the Welsh view of their geopolitical context since 1050 to 1400. Could you tell us a, a bit about that article, what's going on in there and how that serves the volume's purposes? Yeah, so, um, you know, anytime you try and create an edited collection, uh, table of contents or, or structure, um, you have to try and think about, okay, so am I just going to throw all this in there or is there going to be some organizing principle? And if so, what is that organizing principle? And so I tried to create an organizing structure that was sources that are very outward looking and then sources that are more inward looking. Um, and it doesn't always fit, right? I mean, you know, there are a couple texts that are really right on the border. And so I put one at the end of the first section and, and one right at the beginning of the second section. Um, but Frederick's text absolutely is one of these that is much more inward looking about its own neighborhood, right? And so what he's talking about are nicknames, which is something I've never thought about. And so I was just really bowled over uh, when I got this um 
uh, information from him and read through this because I, you know, I've been reading a little bit about uh, medieval Wales, you know, uh, Stevenson's work, um, but I hadn't thought about any of these issues. And so, uh, you know, what Fred does in here is he looks at the terms that gets you the terms that get used um, for. Uh, ethnic nicknames. So uh, Sice, right, uh, is one of these nicknames that gets used pretty often. And uh, we see in there that Sice, uh, S-A-I-S, and I apologize, I don't actually speak Welsh. Um, and so I, I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, but gets used for English, right? So as a, a somebody who is from England. And so, so we see the inclusion of this nickname, um, Sice, in uh, uh, 23 instances in one place and 10 instances in another. And, um, and it's always like, uh, you know, so-and-so the English, Griffith Sice, right? Griffith the English. And it is a way to other and connect Griffith, which is a good proper Welsh name with the English. Um, and then we see the same thing literally uh, when we get to uh, Gwydel, Right. Um, and then we get this Gwydel nickname um, and it's a label for an Irishman. And so we see this Gwydel uh, nickname for people who are of Irish and uh, descent. And already from the 11th and 12th century, we see these labels as ways to identify the ethnicity of somebody that is creating them as other than native. Uh, in our sources. And I just thought that was so fascinating uh, and embedded in, in documentary sources, but pulled out in a way that we never would have thought about in the past, or at least I, I don't think we would have. And, and going back to an earlier question, Erica, you know, this is one of the reasons I put in the bit about Ranka is because yes, we are going back to the sources, but we're looking at the sources with all of these new lenses that, that you know, we didn't have 200 years ago and this is one of those great places where, you know, nobody actually thought about these nicknames in the way that Fred is doing. And so uh, I think this is a really clever way to try and get at the sources, authors view of their world around them. Thank you. And I um, and I also just thought that it is such a great way of illustrating how identity is constructed at multiple scales. And I think that this volume does a really nice job of presenting that. Thank you. Yeah. The, um, okay. Well, well, listen, I, um, gosh, we could, I know I'm, oh, we could talk about all of them, but I said, I wouldn't, um, keep you, keep you too, too long. And so with that, I'm going to, um, just encourage our readers to, you know, medievalists and people that study worldviews and identity and issues of authorship. Um, really, I think you'll find it worth your while to um, peruse the articles in this wonderful volume. So thank you again for doing it. But before I let you go, I want to um, I want to thank you for your time. And our final NBN question uh, tends to be, what are you working on next? What's your next project? What are you working on now? Uh, do you want what I'm writing or what's going to come out soon? Um, it, both. <laughs> okay. Um, well, there are a couple things that are coming out soon, but the one I'd like to mention is a book called Rulers and Rulership in the Arc of Medieval Europe. Uh, and this is an attempt to reconceptualize how we think about rulers and rulership, taking England not as normative, but as abnormal, and instead focusing on the ways that we see rulers and rulership in a territory that stretches from 
Iberia, north to Ireland, across Scandinavia, and down through Central and Eastern Europe to Byzantium, the medieval Roman Empire. And if we look at that territory, which is uh, the territory that is most of Europe, what's going on there? And, and let's look at what's going on there and see is that the same as what we've constructed as our normative view based on England? And it turns out it's not. I mean, perhaps not surprisingly. And so it's a, a way to get at a new view of how we understand medieval Europe as a broader perspective. So that comes out in August. Um, what I'm writing right now is a collective biography of the, a queen of Rus. And we don't have enough information to write a book about, you know, we've got no Eleanor of Aquitaine or, or Uraca of Leon Castile. Um, so uh, I'm writing a collective biography where we've got bits and pieces about all kinds of different women, and it's going to follow a life cycle. And so we'll learn about their, their marriages, their faith, their death, their political activities, all of these sorts of things. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I, they both sound terrific, and I will really look forward to um, to reading this and potentially assigning a book about medieval queenship. Um, so, yeah, I'm really th thank you for thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing it. All right, then. Um, again, just thank you so much for your expertise, your work, and for spending this hour with us. Um, and uh, congratulations on on all these wonderful publications that that you have um, made happen. And um, well, I look forward to the next interview, Christian. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye bye.